0: One of the things that I've been doing in the time that I've been out of the pulpit for five, six weeks—however long I've been out of the pulpit—was um, considering where the Lord would have us and 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 thinking through and reading through um, His Word and studying through about what worship is. And for the next several weeks. Um, emphasis on several, we're going to go through a series which is not going to be exhaustive. We're not going to exhaust everything there is to know biblically about worship, but my intention is going to be to give us a framework of what biblical worship looks like. So we're going to go through the entire Bible, um, and we're going to go through it fast, the, the way that I have it in my mind, I'm from the law, from the Torah, for two weeks, what does the Torah teach us about worship, and then what is the prophets, and what is the uh, writings, and then the gospels and the epistles. So about eight weeks, give or take, we're going to be in a series about what biblical worship is, so that we can have a framework of what worship actually means, beyond what we do every Sunday when we get together, right? Um, and I think it's really important. I think it's really important to discuss about this topic um, because we have a kind of a warped understanding of what worship is. Well, we, have a, we might have a general notion of what worship is, but mo- if we're honest, it's mostly incomplete. And we don't necessarily know what exactly worship means. So my goal in this series, and really in in today, is to to show you four main things. And that would be our outline. um, That I want to show you from God's word that worship is a part of your makeup. And we're going to look at Genesis 1. Um, Secondly, I want to show you how God views worship as a priority. And I want to show you how your view of God affects how you worship God. And then lastly, I want to work through and show you how considering these three things, how all of these considerations would point to Christ ultimately and to the gospel. So we work through these things together. Um, But let's pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again to ask for grace and mercy, to give us insight into your word, to convict us of the truth, to conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the Power of your spirit, who is a work as we hear your word being proclaimed, Father. I pray that you would use me as a faithful servant to proclaim your truth and your truth only, and not my own ideas. So, take over the rest of our time together for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, the most popular thinking that is really prevalent in the world right now is what we, philosophy-wise, what we call secular humanism. That says humanity is capable of being moral and also fulfill his own desire, its own desire, without belief in any deity, without belief in any God we can actually be our own moral compasses, and we can actually be fulfilled in and of ourselves. So we're constantly reminded and taught to rely on ourselves. Self-preservation, right? Darwin and evolution theory and everything else that you learned in in grade school, and high school, and even in colleges, right? Self-preservation. Self-confidence, being confident in oneself, self-esteem. These are terms that are really common in our times. Self-help books, self-improvement. What is the one thing that you keep hearing? The word self keeps happening because we are inundated, we are infiltrated even as Christians by this idea of the self being at the center of the universe. Because at the end of the day, your identity is who yourself is. And your identity is a reflection of an image that is worth. So, whatever your self worth is, is where you find identity. Hence, we have the identity politics that are really rampant in our society now. You turn on the news, it's in your school, it's in your work, it's everywhere. Identity, identity, I identify as. It's all about identity because we want to be self-reliant and be autonomous. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because your identity and your worship are correlated. Because your identity is really how you reflect that image that is inside of you. And worship is... Is the expression of the worth of something, expressing how much one thing means to you. So if your identity is at the core of who you are, and that's what you're expressing and that's what you're pursuing, worship is not far from that. So I want us to consider how worship and your identity are correlated, that your identity is actually a part of, or your worship is actually your part of your identity, the other way around. So for that, I want us to turn together and be ready, and that's why I kind of had them up, um, to, to go and read these verses together. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Reads. Then God said, let us make man and our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the all, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, and God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Did you notice how many times in these two verses the word image is in your Bible? We see image three times in two verses. And just for free, I'll give you a a Bible study tool. If something is repeated in a verse, if a word or an idea is repeated in in a passage, it might be something that you might want to pick up on and, and pay attention to because God doesn't repeat himself for no reason. So when you look at how mankind was created, how we were shaped, how God brought mankind into existence, image-bearing is at the center of it. To bear the image of God is at the heart of God creating mankind. We see this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. But he he tells, he tells um, Noah as he's getting his covenant, whoever sheds man's blood by man, by man's by man, his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. So there's a value in the image of God that is in man, to the point that if someone takes someone's life, that he will be held responsible for it. Because that image is at the heart of man's creation. So at the core of our being, we are imaging creatures. Or another way to say that is, we are image-reflecting beings. We reflect the image of God at creation. That's how He made us. That's what this passage is telling us. And at any point in life, any human being throughout history has either reflected the image of the Creator, God, or the image of creation. But no one has never not reflected anything. You reflect an image because that is a part of your identity. You're either reflecting an image of the creator or creation. You're either going to be like David in our scripture reading as we saw in Psalm 8 verses 3 to 9 where David is contemplating how God created this whole universe and how big and vast it is. And then he considers who man is. Who is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would... care for him and then he goes on to say you've made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty you put all these creatures under his dominion and he he goes through this creation account in his mind he contemplates and look at how he finishes in verse 8 and verse 9 when he thinks of who he is at the core of how mankind was created David says O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He goes straight to worship. As he's reflecting the image of the Creator. So you're either reflecting God's image, who is the Creator, or you're reflecting the creation. Like those that are mentioned in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, who those that suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then verse 22 and 23 in Romans 1 says, professing to be wise, by the way, this is exactly how how they they present it, right? Backwards religion, God thing is, is like, they needed it back then, thousands of years ago to make sense of the world. We have science. We have technology. We don't need it now. I mean, all the things that they struggled with back then and they had to make sense of it, so they they had to use God. And we don't need them now because we're modern people. We're wiser than they were. So they're professing to be wise, Paul says, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. Notice what it says. For an image in the likeness of corruptible man secular humanism and of birds creation and four-footed animals more creation and crawling creatures so they started reflecting that image and they start worshiping science philosophy education money fame fortune other people like family members, kids, careers, jobs. Those things become what we reflect. And whatever we reflect, we worship. If we reflect the image of God, like David, we worship God. If we reflect ourselves, our self-worth, our cars, our houses, our money, our bank accounts, our educational standing, then we reflect that and we worship those things. G.K. Bill writes this. He has a book called um, You Become What You Worship, and it's a biblical theology of, of idolatry. That's the subtitle. He writes this in that book. What people revere, they resemble. What people revere, what people hold dear to their heart and they respect and they honor and they worship, they start looking like that thing because they're image bearers at heart. At the core of our creation. That's what we do. So whatever we we have high reverence for, we start being like that. I mean, imagine the way you dressed today to come to church. Think about the language that you use. Think, look at your, your friend groups even. Most of you are into the same kind of things, same interests, and you can kind of identify by the way that everybody reflects that image what is at the core of of that i'm not saying it's it's a bad thing though that you're dressed this way but whatever you revere you start resembling so my challenge is if i keep hanging out with y'all one of these days i'm gonna stand behind the pulpit with sweats and a and a beanie on If this is true, again, that's, most of you got it. That's a good joke, I guess, for today. But he writes, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. At your core, whose image do you reflect? The world's or God's? What or who do you show more worth to? Because at your core, at creation, at the core of your identity, worship is there because you are made to worship. Man is a worshiping creature. I don't know the last time you saw a bunch of cats get together and then everybody looking up at a pulpit, for scripture to be read or a bunch of dogs started praying or you've never seen anything like that in any other creature except for man because man is made to reflect the image of God by worshiping him. You are made to worship. That is a core of your identity. Now people have taken it throughout history and made it to where false religions are abundant now. Even the people that say, I don't believe in anything. I'm an atheist. They, they are worshiping something as someone, which is themselves. That's because at the core, you reflected this worshiping attitude. So who do you show more worth to? Or what do you show more worth to? And it's important to uh, to, to consider this because God's view, that's our second point, God's view of worship is at very, very top of the list. Having seen that you are made for worship, that worship is part of your DNA, literally. And I don't mean literally in a way that people are using literally these days. I mean it to the core of your DNA. In a literal sense, that's in your DNA, worship is. Consider how God views worship. So much so that the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with worship. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. God gives this law, which he writes on the two tablets, which Moses then rewrites. He begins by saying this, You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or on earth or beneath or in water underneath the earth, you shall not worship, verse 5, second one, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love and kindness to those, to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You see in verses 3 to 5 that when God gives the law, His Ten Commandments, He prioritizes who you worship. It's high up there. Worship, because it's part of your DNA, as He gives you His law and His commandments, He puts it high up there. His view is not as if worship is somewhere down the line, you know, don't kill anybody. You know, don't cheat on your wife. Don't covet your neighbor's belongings. Oh, and by the way, don't worship. No, he. that's number one and number two. He explains number one with number two. Because worship is a high priority for God. So what, what God is saying here is, when he says, you shall not have any other gods, he's saying you must not be possessed by any other deity or any other philosophy. You may not, you must not, you shall not reflect any other image worthy of worship, hence the word gods, than me. Nor should you substitute true worship of me, by making up things in your mind. Even if those things are things that you think represent who he is. In the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 34, we see, um, actually chapter 32, we see that Israel, Moses goes up to receive the law, and he stays up there for 40 days. And they they grow impatient. And they, they want to worship. Something. Someone. So they ask Aaron. And they bring him all their gold. That God gave them, by the way. Just for your consideration. All the gold that the Israel, Israelites had. It's not something that they just worked for. As they left Egypt. The Egyptians gave it to them for free because God made them do that. And they take what God gives them and they give it to Aaron and Aaron forms this golden calf and they start worshiping and they, they start calling that calf Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So in their mind, they're worshiping Yahweh, but it's actually a calf. that they, It's something that they wanted to represent him. God says, don't do that. And it, this is after he told him, don't do that, by the way. God is so, so concerned about worship. He puts this as the second law in the Ten Commandments. Don't substitute the true worship of him by making things up that you think represent him. He takes glory and worship so seriously that he says, I am a jealous God. This is the reasoning behind it. Don't serve them for I, Yahweh, I'm a jealous God. I am intolerant of disloyality, being disloyal to me. I don't tolerate being disloyal. I'm jealous because I put my image in you, and then now you take your image and then you turn it around and give it to somebody else or make it reflect somebody else's image. No, this is my image. That's mine. So I don't tolerate that. I'm jealous in that way. Rightly so. He takes it seriously. In Isaiah 42 and 8, he says this, God himself, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. It does not get any clearer than that. He declares who he is. He says, I don't share my glory with no one else. Not your parents, not your money, not your job, not your school, not your wife and your husband, if you have one of those, not your children. I don't share with anyone. He is the only one to be praised and worshipped. He takes it seriously. He considers the way you reflect his image seriously. And his view of worship that's due to him Is a matter of being loyal to Him or treasonous to Him? And if we've said enough, if we've said uh, this about how God views worship, how do you view God? Because how you view God determines how you worship Him. Because in our time, what God has become is just a three-letter word. That can mean anything you can kind of use your imaginations to define. If God is just a three-letter word with a meaning that you can come up with and change us over time as you see fit, then that is idolatry and not worship. if God is anything else than his own self-revelation in Scripture, then that worship is incomplete at best. And idolatry at worst. That's why he continues to remind them, right? In Isaiah 42, verse 8, as we saw, he says, I am who I am that's the meaning of the word Yahweh that's his name I am who I am that's my name that I revealed to my people as, as, as Moses met him and and in, in the burning bush he says that's who he is and then he continues to remind us who his name is And if we are not going to worship Him on His terms, according to how He has revealed Himself in Scripture, then, I mean, best case scenario. I mean, if we're really just gullible and innocent, and I'm not saying anybody does it perfectly, but if we're not striving to worship Him in the way that He reveals Himself as, and it's going to be lacking, and it's going to be, it's going to lead to idolatry. That's just a slippery slope. And my policy about slippery slopes is unless you want to go down it, stay clear. I mean, I got good balance, you know, I've been working out my core, you know, I can stand on the slippery slope, I'm, I'm all right, I can, I can hold on. Eventually, you will slip and you'll fall. you find yourself. And that's, they have a weird way of doing that as well. So the way you view God, who God is in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit, det- determines how you worship Him. For that, let's go and look and see how Isaiah saw God. A familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 6, if you'd go there with me, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah writes, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Now imagine, if you're anything like me, as you read things, there's an image that is being created in your mind, right? So imagine how he sees God. God is high and lifted up. He is not here in front of him and equal to him or beneath him. He's looking up at God. He's lifted up. He's lofty. Just... Observe that as we read. With the train of his robe filling the temple, even his kind of whatever he leaves behind fills the entire temple. The seraphim stood above him, angels, each having six wings, With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that sound like worship to you, by the way? Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, and the whole earth is full of His glory. There's even a song, a worship song, we would call it in contemporary times, that has exactly these words. So these angelic beings are singing this. Notice how holy is mentioned three times. Hint, hint, it's important, His holiness. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called out while the house of God was filling with smoke. We see this image of this grand thing that is beyond our our imagination even. Then I said, listen to, this is the prophet Isaiah that we're talking about, right? He has a book in the Bible. Last time I checked, none of us here have a book in the Bible bearing our names. I mean, he's got to be like cool with God, better than we are. He's got to be something close to who God is. He's got to be godly to some extent, even even more than us. And look at what he says. Once once he sees this vision of who God is, listen to his response. Read his response. Woe is me, for I am ruined. and Jency and I'm dead. Right? Not in a funny way, either. <laughs> That's what he's saying. I see this thing, and I'm just consumed by the holiness and by the glory. And he's so high, and he's lifted up, and these angelic beings that don't have sin in them, even because these are the holy angels, they're not like us. Because we are made a little lower than the angels, as we read earlier, right? <laughs> they have a, a, a level of closeness to him. They're not like us. We will judge them at the end of the day. That's another conversation for another day. But even they have to shield their eyes and shield their feet and sing out, holy, holy. This is the image that he sees. He is so transcendent that when he sees them, he says, I am lost. I am ruined. I'm dead. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. This is essential. Because at the root of idolatry, at the root of worship, is the thought, actually, at the root of idolatry, is the thought of God as being less than what he is. or other than what He is. So we need to know who He is. We need to see God high and lifted up. Is God big in your hearts and in your minds? Or is God just whoever you think He is? Or whoever you heard me say He is from a pulpit, or your favorite YouTube pastor said He is? Have you encountered God the way that Isaiah saw him? By the way, it's not just Isaiah uh, that has, in the New Testament, we see Peter. Having a very similar experience. As Jesus gets in the boat after Peter uh, um, has, has been fishing all night and he hasn't caught any fish, and then here comes this carpenter telling the fisherman how to fish. He's like, take take it out and, and throw your net, cast your net on this side. He's like, all right, if you say so, I'll do it. I guess you know it all. And then he throws it. All night they've been trying these are experts in the field of fishing all night haven't caught one fish Jesus gets in the boat he tells them what to do he does it and the nets are break- breaking breaking because there's so much fish that they had to call other boats to come and help him gather all this fish and at that point He's not even worried about how much fish they got and how much money they're going to get. He's not worried about that. What Peter does is he falls at the feet of Jesus. He realizes he's in the presence of the Holy One, of God. He says, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. Is that how you view God and view yourself? Or are you doing a favor to God? by coming to church on Sunday, by singing out loud. Even that is like, we have to motivate you and get you to work up, and like God needs me. God doesn't need us. Imagine what Jesus said. You remember what Jesus said as he was going to be crucified? Well, that would be later that week. He was sitting on a colt, and he's going into Jerusalem. A week of his um, crucifixion, and the people were just rejoicing because they thought that they were going. He was going to go in, and, and he was going to overtake the Roman Empire. And he's like, "Here's our king," and they're rejoicing. And the Pharisees come and say, "Hey, tell them be quiet." He says, "If they're quiet, these rocks would." sing out so it's not like i mean i wasn't here three weeks you saw that god doesn't need me here to continue his work that's the kind of knowledge that that is revealed to isaiah in this in this passage or even to peter woe is me i am nothing i am ruined i'm dead because i have seen the holiness of god is is your vision of god that. If God is not bigger. If God's glory is not the biggest thing in your mind when you think of God. If He is less than or other than what He revealed Himself in Scripture as. then we're back on that slippery slope again. So our view of God determines the way we worship Him. And God is not just a bigger and better version of our, ourselves, some type of superhero, DC or uh, Marvel, whichever one tickles your fancy, right? He's not like a superhero. It's like who I want to become one day type of deal. He's otherly. That's what holy means. He's transcendent. The God of the Bible is completely and utterly, unimaginably even, transcendent. He is unique. He's not like us. In Psalm fifty twenty one, which we'll see in a, in a few weeks in more depth, he, he tells Israel, who was idolatry, idolatrous at the time, You thought that I was just like you? God is not like us. He is transcendent. He is much bigger, much magnificent, much otherworldly, matchless. Yet, He's not far from us. Yet, He is not so removed in in space and time, He, he, he actually condescends himself, and he comes to us, and he's even closer than our closest friend. And what happens to us, mostly as Christians, is familiarity breeds contempt, right? The more we get used to somebody, right, the more we hang out with somebody, the first time, you know, you're kind of like okay. I don't know how to film out. I don't know who he is, and so I'm going to show him a level of respect. Or uh, our interaction is more, much more cordial. But the more we spend time together, and this is true for all of us, the more you spend time with somebody, the more you get so familiar, close with them, you start thinking, "I oh, know, okay, we cool. I can say anything and get away with it." And that's what Israel thought, by the way, in Psalm 50, verse 21. And he tells them, these things you have done, and I kept silent. Just because he didn't do anything, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, he's not, he's not punishing us for putting, like, these high places for Baal, and, 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 you know, we're intermarrying with others, and we're, we're just constantly not worshiping him the way that he desired to be worshiped. And he's silent, so he must be cool with it. He's not killing us immediately. He's not doing that. And God says, you think I'm like you? I am not. You thought I was just like you? And the answer is obviously no. That's a rhetorical question. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. He will judge if we don't have the right. So don't let your familiarity with God make Him come down to your level and think that He's one of us. The way we see God determines the way we worship Him. We must worship God with fear and trembling, recognizing His holiness in the truest sense and recognizing Our sinfulness in the truest sense. If this is not your view of, of God, then it's incomplete at best again. And you're worshiping an idol at worst. And this high view of God, that's what we strive to do. We want to have a high view of God. When you have a high view of God, it causes you to worship Him with true reverence. You approach Him according to His terms and conditions, not yours. See, a, a lot of the problems that we're having in our lives today is because we want to approach God on our terms. Okay, God, here's my terms and conditions. This is what I want. This is what I don't want. This is what I need protection from. This is, can you do it for me? Then God just becomes a glorified genie in a bottle in the sky somewhere. You rub him the right way. He just pops out. Do your bidding and, or some heavenly butler. Ring the bell. He's there. But a high view of God causes us to approach Him on His terms. Because in order to have a high view of God, we need to have a scriptural view of God. If you don't have a scriptural view of God, and if your view of God is what your parents told you, or what you heard me preach, or anybody behind the pulpit preach, and if you have not met God in His Word, and you have not seen Him, it's going to be incomplete. And you are always going to try to meet God in his terms. And I can tell you how many times I have talked to people that have walked away from the faith because they said, I prayed to God to take this away from me, and he didn't, so I'd stop believing in him. Oh, you mean to tell me that you dictated the terms to the God of the universe, and then you thought that he was going to just, not not on his own terms, but on your terms, meet you where you are? That's a warped thinking. And we need to be wary of that. And if we are honest about whose image we reflect, most often, most often is not God's, the creator's. What your daily lives look like If you were to take inventory and be honest with that. If we are honest and and true and how we consider the lofty way God views worship. And how we reduce it to some kind of experience that arouses your emotion. That makes you happy or that makes you feel some type of way on Sunday mornings. And if we are honest about how deficient our view of God is, we will recognize that all of us are lacking. That's another Gen Z word, right? We are lacking. And it is imperative to turn to Christ and His worship. We need to get Christ's definition of true worship in this matter to fill that lack. We will be like Peter. We, we should be like Isaiah. And then who do we turn to? Because we can't do that perfectly at all times. I can't wake up and worship. From the moment I wake up to the moment I fall asleep, even sometimes in my dreams, I disobey God. So who should we look to to define worship to us consider this last scripture turn to John chapter 4 verse 19 through 23 this is again another familiar passage this is a story of the Samaritan woman Is what the Bible translators have deemed it to be But consider this conversation that Jesus and this woman is having. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Notice, she recognizes that he is someone that comes from God. And then she states her terms and conditions. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And your people, your Jewish people, again, terms and conditions, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he confronts her with this reality. You worship what you do not know. You worship in ignorance. Bless your heart. We worship what we know, but we don't do it rightly. The Jews. For salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, in this moment, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshippers. This is a clearest definition of what true worship is, what kind of worship the Father desires. Who else has the the ability to describe and tell you what God the Father wants from you, except for the Son, who explains Him according to John one eighteen. So consider your thoughts. as we work through these first three points, right? Reasoning with yourself to justify that your worship is sufficient, kind of like the Samaritan woman. Maybe trying to harmonize your worship experience to stand vindicated before God and saying, nah, that's, that's them, and that's, that's over them in that corner that don't pay attention when you're preaching. Now, me, I'm here for, I'm all in. Consider those thoughts that were going through your mind. Maybe, maybe you're eagerly trying to sincerely seek to worship God on His terms. For that, you must first come to Christ. Christ is the answer for that. If you want to know what God's terms is. You must first come to Christ. Who was said, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, God spoke to us in His Son, who is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, even. John 1:18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, God who is in the bosom of the Father, He explained Him. You must come to Christ to know what true worship is. And He says that true worship that honors God the Father comes through the Son empowered by the Spirit. He says true worship the Father desires comes through the Son who is the truth way in the life and through the Spirit the Holy Spirit that animates and energizes and fills you worship that the Father would receive from us as worthy must come from the work of the Holy Spirit not our imagination, as He, the Holy Spirit, transforms us to the image of Christ by His power and by His Word, by His truth. That's the kind of worship. In other words, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered worship. Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered expression of the worthiness of God is worship. You get it. What are some application points? Based on the outline, I want to give you these quick four practical applications as we finish. What then should we do knowing this? Knowing that our DNA has worship written and encoded into it. Worship God with all that you are. Knowing that God holds worship at high regard, examine and rearrange where worship is in your life. Where is worship in your life? Do you see it as high as God does? These are simple, practical applications of what we've looked at. Knowing that the way we view God determines our worship. We must strive to always maintain this high view of God in all circumstances. Are you struggling with sin? Are you struggling with managing your time? Are you struggling with staying on top of your education? Are you struggling with some kind of deficiency in your life that you think you need? God is bigger than that. Maintain that high view of God in all circumstances, and you will worship Him on His terms. And lastly, knowing that what God desires is worshipers that would worship Him in spirit and in truth, yield to the Holy Spirit as He reveals Christ in Scripture for worship. Spray, pray. Father, we are so grateful that you, who are holy, 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 beyond our imagination, have chosen to speak to us through words that are comprehensible to us. But just because we comprehend the words that you've spoken to us, that doesn't mean that we get to comprehend all of who you are. But Lord, we nonetheless want to worship You as Your Spirit leads us and presents us before the throne of grace because of the completed work of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And as He illumines Your Word to our hearts and to our minds, we desire to worship You on Your terms. We want to be a a true worshiper of the one true God who gives us life and whom we have life and our breath and we have our being. So Father, help us help our unbelief, help our distractions, help our temptations, help our weaknesses by the strength of your might, according to the Spirit that is a work in you. We thank you for you are faithful to hear the prayer of your people and answer them according to your will, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.